All right, Jesse, my feet are still cold after last week's episode. Where or when are we heading to this time? We are going way back in time today for an 1800s serial killer who had six husbands and maybe murdered half of them. And just when you think her reign of terror is over, she strikes again. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about inhumane husbands, devilish wives, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, we had so many amazing reviews this week. I cannot thank you guys enough. It was pretty awesome. It really was. It was like such a great week. I really want to thank all of you. I know a lot of people said that they listened to us at work. I love that. I love like helping people's day go faster. Yeah. And we're just going to keep churning out content as best we can. So there's there's more to binge soon, hopefully. I know. Episode 51. 51. We are coming up on that year anniversary. And I cannot believe where we've we've been in a year and also what we've done with our bodies and our minds here. It's been an incredible year, Andy. And I just want to tell you that I love you and appreciate you. I love you too. So 52 is next week. So that means that, was that the episode that we did when we took the test? Well, we started July 15. That was when we launched, that was when it went That was when we launched it. So we actually, yeah, we hadn't even launched when we took the test. Yeah, we did three, we did our first three episodes together or like close together and then launched Mm -hmm. it mid-July. So we did launch it in mid-July. So I think we already, by the time we launched, we already knew we were pregnant, but we found it out after the second taping. Yeah. So So crazy. Yeah. I think it's the anniversary of us finding out we were pregnant on the same day is coming up. I should post those pictures to the gram. You should. Of the screenshot. (laughs) Yeah. Andy and I found out we were pregnant on the same day and then we had babies five days apart. I mean, if you guys are are new listeners, welcome. We don't usually talk about the babies this much. And if you are regular listeners, you probably already know. Yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) we are going to celebrate our almost year anniversary with one of my very favorite types of stories. A historical murder story. <laughs> I like the historicals too. Yeah, they're fun. And I know I know that we have a contingent of people who really like them. So I love to deliver one like, you know, every seven or eight episodes or so, you know? Just sprinkle it in. Just sprinkle it in. Okay, so let's get going. On June 1894 in Monticello, New York, a small town nestled in the Catskills, a trial was beginning that would draw global attention. The stuffy courtroom was filled to the rafters with reporters and looky-loos who were eager for a glimpse of the horrific monster who stood charged with triple homicide. In they dragged a petite woman, only a tad over five feet and roughly 105 pounds in chains. Her small stature belied a dangerous and violent nature. 
The press went wild for this new multi-murderer, as the term serial killer hadn't even been coined yet. Crazy. This case was hot on the heels of the Lizzie Borden case. We all know the famous alleged murderess who chopped her parents into bits and was acquitted. People were fascinated with this new breed of woman killer, and the question on everyone's mind was, will this madwoman named Lizzie Halliday also be found not guilty? If she was found to be guilty and convicted of murder, she would be the first woman ever to be sent to the electric chair. Whoa. Yeah, so the stakes are high. One thing is for sure, the three murders that she stands accused of, well, they weren't her first killings, and sadly, they wouldn't be her last. Welcome to the bizarre world of a serial killer dubbed the Catskill Ripper, Ms. Eliza Lizzie McNally Halliday, the most hated woman in America. That's such a name. Such a name. I didn't do <laughs> Ms. Eliza Lizzie McNally Halliday. Wow. <laughs> yep. So who is Lizzie? Who did she kill? And will she get away with it? You'll find out today on Ye Old Plus Murder. <laughs> We have to brand the historic ones ye old. <laughs> ye old. Ye old love murder. Okay, so Eliza Margaret McNally, who in youth went by her middle nickname Maggie, was born in 1859. <laughs> yeah, she has like a million names. This is another situation where she's called a bunch of things. We're going to mostly call her Lizzie, but when okay. she was younger, she went by Maggie. Wow. She was the youngest of nine brothers and sisters, two Irish immigrants to the United States. Her father, John, and eldest brothers left Ballymena, County Antrim in Ireland in 1867 for Philadelphia while they worked in a tavern owned by the McQuillan family, who had been neighbors of the McNallys back in Ireland. When Thomas McQuillan lost his first wife, he decided to move to a more rural locale and settled his family in Newburgh, New York, a port town on the Hudson River. And that's um, just across the river from us. It's only about an hour away from where I live. Okay, cool. Yeah, so this is kind of a local it spooky is. murder story for me. Yeah. And oh, and um, the, the, the author of this book is a local guy as well. Stop. Um, Yep. And his name is Kevin Owen. And the book that I'm using today is called Killing Time in the Catskills. And it's a local author. Great tale. He like meticulously combed through like every newspaper article, everything he could find out about Lizzie and put together a complete history of her murders, which no one had ever done before. So thank you, Kevin. You should meet up with him. I should, but I'm shy. I feel like if I ever met any of these authors, I'd be like so... <laughs> starstruck starstruck and bashful so funny when um i worked at the bar in boston sansi like we'd have celebrities like legit like tom cruise like rolling through there obviously tom brady was there all the time with giselle and like i'm totally fine and then juno diaz the writer came in and i'm like i can't i can't wait on him i can't do it <laughs> turning bright red i just can't so like writers are my huge celebrities and <laughs> i think i'd be too embarrassed yeah, if like Greg Olson was like, hey, what's up? Thanks for using my books on the podcast. Or like, you dummies, you got it wrong or something. I'd be like, stop it. I can't talk to Greg Olson. <laughs> <laughs> that is too funny. It's like my one thing. It's so funny. Okay. So yes, we're in Newburgh, New York, which is kind of near where I live in the Hudson River Valley. 
And his eldest son, that's Thomas McQuillan, stayed and he went on to run a successful tavern in Philly. And uh, basically then the McNallys, which are, you know, obviously Lizzie's family, they decided to go check out Newburgh as well after their neighbors had moved up there. And they decided that they liked it also because the rolling hills of the Hudson Valley actually reminded them of their home in Ireland. I'm sure. Geographically, it's like closer, yes. you know, and it's, it's more of that vibe. It's very similar. It's very verdant. It's very green. It's very rolling hills, just like they said. You know, it's it's a lovely area. I'm really happy to live here. Once settled in 1872, Mother Pam McNally and all of the younger Kittles came over finally. Lizzie was eight years old, the baby of the bunch, and she grew up playing with the McQuillan kids, growing close enough to end up dating Nathaniel McQuillan when he was 17 and Lizzie was 14. Is that our first Nathaniel? I think that's our first Nathaniel, which obviously comes up in a historical. Oh my God, so funny. In the New England, no less. In the New England. There's also a Gus later too. So my family's all over this. Ooh. Yeah. It's kind of weird. <laughs> Lizzie definitely hoped for a marriage proposal from young Mr. McQuillan, but none materialized. And she was forced to move to Greenwich, New York, near the Vermont border with her family. And so I actually don't know if it's Greenwich or Greenwich because it's not Greenwich, Connecticut, and it's not Greenwich Village. But I'm assuming they're all pronounced Greenwich, right? So she was like bummed out to have to move there and not get a marriage proposal. And it's around that time when the McNallys move and they get settled in Greenwich that Lizzie starts displaying disturbing and violent behaviors. Ooh. She apparently was assaulting people in her family. She dropped out of school and she became a domestic servant. However, she didn't really shine in household duties. When one boss made a gentle suggestion about how to best bake something, Lizzie flew into a hysterical fit, screaming and insulting the woman until she had to be asked to leave the household. Yikes. Yeah. And then later she came back in and tried to act like everything was totally normal. And they're like, no, you are fired. You just assaulted the woman of the house. And she later wrongfully accused the woman of assault and battery and attempted to extort her former boss for money. Whoa. Yeah. She's got balls, this chick. During this period, Lizzie was always in and out of court. She was getting arrested for assault and she was always like getting sued or countersuing former employers. She even threatened a child with a knife in a cellar at one of the households she worked at. Sounds like Catherine Knighty. Yes, it's very Catherine Knighty. She's very unbalanced. She's already very violent from a young age. Is she also a fiery redhead? <laughs> no, she's a brunette. Okay. <laughs> She's a dark brunette. Okay. Dark and stormy. Smultry. <laughs> yeah. She's not very, <laughs> she's not very good looking. Obviously, there's not a lot of photographic evidence because uh, we're talking about the 1800s, but the sketches are not very flattering to her. Let's just say that. Oh, no. Later, when her brother John was asked to comment, he said, she was inclined so much to quarreling that the family all disowned her for years. She could not stay in any place at any time when working on account of her violent temper. Lizzie was described as unpredictable, reckless, mean-spirited, and a wildcat. Having been ejected from several households as a domestic servant and alienated from her family, 15-year-old Lizzie had little to do but marry to keep a roof over her head. So Mary, she did. And gosh, she really did. Six times before she was 29 years old. Whoa. I mean, that has to be a record. 
It's once every two years. Yeah. She actually fit like five in really fast. And then, well, you'll see. I'll, I'll just keep <laughs> telling you. Yeah. In 1879, the teenager married a man who went by the alias Charles Hopkins, despite being born Ketspool Brown. Now, the book and the Wikipedia differ. One says that Charles Hopkins was his alias. Another one says Ketspool Brown was his alias. In any case, one of these names was his real name, and he was going by a different name. The reason for the alias was that he was a deserter from the British army, but I don't think it was just that because he seemed like a real skis ball this guy <laughs> what can you please tell me what his other name is besides charles <laughs> Ket spool Ket how do you spell Brown. that k-e-t-s-p-o-o-l Ketspool. Ketspool. yeah <laughs> i feel like it could go either way like that name is so crazy that that has to be your alias but also if that's your given name i feel like you'd be like god damn it just call me charles well, see, why I thought that practically to me, it would make sense that he would go by Charles Hopkins because that's like a name that you can fade into, you know, like if you're trying to be in hiding, yeah. you use a name like John Smith, like Charles Hopkins, you know, you don't yeah. use Ketspool Brown. People are going to remember a Ketspool. So that's why I kind of think that Ketspool was his real name and the alias was Charles Hopkins, but the book said opposite. And then Wikipedia said the opposite, opposite of the books. So, yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, I I don't know really what's going on. With He's still guy. tricking people. He's still tricking people like hundreds of years later. It's amazing. So yeah, this guy was definitely a skis. His exact age is unknown, but he was described as considerably older than 15-year-old Lizzie. And he was involved in some super shady shit when they met. So Charles was a carpenter who had done some work for a wealthy farmer. The farmer had a married housekeeper named Mrs. Campbell, whom Charles seduced and then convinced, he convinced her to steal money from the farmer. Okay. After Mrs. Campbell had forked over $200, which was not an insignificant amount in 1879, he wrote a letter telling Mrs. Campbell that he was ditching her and that he was taking all of the money and he was never going to pay her back. He's like, this is a Dear John letter. I'm leaving you. I'm also taking all the money. Bye. So by now, he had been two-timing Mrs. Campbell with young Lizzie, which also Mrs. Campbell's married. So also, lady, like, chill out here. Maybe, like, don't get a, a, a lover that makes you steal when you're already married, you know? But Mrs. Campbell was not into the fact that he had ditched her for this teenager and obviously fleeced her out of all the money that she stole for him. And so she kept repeatedly turning up looking for her misbegotten funds and her erstwhile lover. And when she did this, Lizzie was getting really jealous and really pissed off. And already we know that this is not the type of person you want to piss off. Yeah. Shortly after the woman's confrontation, Mrs. Campbell was found dead in her bed. Uh-oh. On her nightstand was a bottle of poison. Although no note was found, the poisoning was ruled a suicide. Later, Lizzie would claim that Charles Hopkins was a bad man who she had witnessed feed Mrs. Campbell the poison, telling her it was medication for an ailment. This would be the first in a long line of Lizzie claiming to have been an innocent bystander who witnessed the event rather than the more likely truth that she was the perpetrator of the crime. Yeah. 
you'll see it's a total theme that keeps coming back up. Like when she's faced with a crime that she 100% committed and everybody knows she committed, she's like, no, I was outside looking through the window when I saw it happen. I didn't do it, you know? Also, like the 1800s loves a poison. Loves a poison. Also, it was really easy to poison people. Yeah. Because people died of so many things in the 1800s that you could poison somebody and they'd be like, ah, it was just his poor heart, you know? Wait till you hear how Charles Hopkins goes down here. Because that oh, will just man. illustrate our point. Yeah. You mean Tepskull? Ketspool. Ketspool. Ketspool Brown. Split. Um, split. So Mrs. Campbell may have been Lizzie's first known victim. So we're going to keep a tally here because she kills a lot of people. So we got we got one maybe over here with Mrs. Campbell. Numero uno. Exactly. After Mrs. Campbell's untimely demise, Lizzie and Charles, a.k.a. Catspool, wed and moved to Vermont, where she delivered a baby boy named Charlie. After birth, she was described by those who knew her as moody, irritable, and delusional. It sounds quite possible that she had a postpartum mood disorder. Yeah, I mean, it seems like she already had a mood disorder, and then... She was already... Yeah. Disturbed. Yeah. And then I can only imagine that the hormones of having a baby did not right that ship, let's say. No, no it definitely no. wronged it. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, up until only a decade ago, there was like real, real awareness and support about mental illness. So you can only imagine what people thought about it in the 1800s. Yeah. No. Yeah. There was no help to be had. She was violent and depressed. And then shockingly, her first husband, Charles, died before their second anniversary. Charles had been employed at a brush factory and the doctor believed that wait, he wait, had... Wait, 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 wait. It's a factory that makes brushes. Uh, like brooms? I, I think like maybe, maybe hairbrushes? Or like hairbrush, okay. So he had been employed at a brush factory and the doctor believed that he had passed away from respiratory irritation as a result of breathing small particles of bristles. So she she could have killed him real easily is what I'm saying. So the doctor said that? That's what the doctor believed. Did she have the doctor in her pocket? No, no, no. I just feel like they weren't doing like real autopsies. I mean, some people were. I'm sure there were some really amazing coroners, who, but they only had rudimentary sciences at their fingertips i'm sure they just like kind of like looked at what was the most probable thing they're like this guy works at a brush factory you know you know those brush factories <laughs> that's so dangerous you know those bristles those bristles can really do you i think it's funny he's probably like a hardcore smoker too and they're like it's definitely the bristles not the tobacco <laughs> Or Not his murderous wife. Much investigation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think this is just one of those things where they were like, I guess that must be it. You know, like they just didn't investigate things as wow. well. I mean, it was way easier to kill somebody back in the day. Jesse, never work at a brush factory, okay? I know. Watch out, everybody Dangerous. who has to work at a brush 1800s factory. brush factory. It sounds terrible. Probably have really long days. Work hazard. Very few benefits what if he was bald he didn't even get to take home a brush that. well so that's that is what they said despite numero the dose. fact this is numero dos because even though the doctor said that he believed it was a work-related illness that killed him he also did say later he goes well you know on his deathbed 
He did say something to me that said, I'm afraid of her. She has threatened my life. She'll kill me. He told this to the doctor. The doctor's like, in retrospect, maybe she killed him. What do you think? So he yeah. like makes like writes help me on a piece of paper. And the doctor's like, and the doctor's like, it was, the, it was, bristles. he was saying, help me against the bristles. Yeah. He was saying, help me. The bristles are killing me. Despite that little nugget of truth, Charles' death was ruled of natural causes. Still, the townsfolk definitely believed Lizzie was behind it. So she left Vermont because the townsfolk were like, you get the hell out of here, you murder us. Leaving behind husband number one and potential victim numero dos. So she moved back to Greenwich where she took up with a much, much older man who was a veteran of the Civil War named Artemis Brewer who had suffered injuries from the war. He also had rheumatism and dropsy of the heart. And basically, rheumatism is like arthritis generally. And dropsy is an old-fashioned word for swelling. So he had swelling of the heart. Oh, God. Yes. His various ailments required that he use two canes. And he was described as an unusually short man with an enormous disproportionate head. Oh, my God. I know, not nice. So naturally, people who were acquainted with Lizzie or her family were curious as to how a girl still in her teens at this point would be interested in such an old, disabled man. Money, 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 money. Exactly. Old Artie had a soldier's pension that Lizzie was eager to get her grubby, murderous hands on. Lizzie was witnessed being abusive to the old man in public, yelling viciously at him and even hitting him with his own canes. Oh, my God. Like a 16-year-old girl. A 16-year-old girl, and I think he's, like, maybe in his 50s or 60s. Which is, like, 80 in the 1800s. a million in 1800s time. (laughs) Yeah. Also, Artemis was also addicted to opium as a result of medicating the pain from his military wounds. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. What else would you – I mean, I would. (laughs) Yeah. If I had – Civil War era wounds that the doctors probably improperly set and had festered and I had to walk around on two canes and I had a teenage bride who was beating me over the head. I would take opium too. You can find me in the opium den. (laughs) You can find me. Please forward my calls. Please forward my pigeon carriers. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Forward the pigeons to the opium den. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so by now they had opium in little um, capsules. So they had started making like, this is like 1800s oxys over here. Yeah. And Lizzie would hide his pills to torment him. Oh my God. Yeah, and then she would tell him she wouldn't give him any of the pills unless he like did things around the house. Like she'd be like, you have to mow the lawn or I won't give you a pill. Be careful what you wish for. Everyone thinks they want like a young hot wife. No, no. She's going to beat you with your own canes. And steal your opium. <laughs> so old Artie only made it through a year of marital hell before he dropped dead. The doctors eventually ruled his death as the result of his dropsy of the heart and other ailments. But one of the doctors and his family believed that Lizzie had given him a fatal dose of his own opium pills. Yeah, she was stashing it up. That's why she was hiding them. She was stashing it up. Brewer's brother tried to appeal to the authorities that Lizzie had often threatened his brother's life and that he had been by his brother's deathbed and Artemis had been blue and foaming at the mouth, which seems more like an overdose than a heart condition situation. 
Yeah, foaming at the mouth definitely sounds strange. Nothing could ever be proven, though. So on the Merry Widow went and met husband number three, Hiram Parkinson, while she was working as a washerwoman. Parkinson presented himself as a widower with several grown-up daughters when he met Lizzie, but it later turned out he was still married. So Lizzie's about to participate in some bigamy. In an attempt to get away from his estranged wife, to whom he was still legally wed, the couple and Lizzie's poor son, Charlie, moved to Vermont. But in less than five months, the relationship collapsed. The two got into a knockdown, drag-out fight about whether Parkinson could travel home to visit his children for Christmas. Whoa. Yeah, Lizzie didn't want him to go, obviously. The event went as detailed by Kevin Owen in the book as follows. Lizzie fought with him physically, removing his clothes when he attempted to get dressed. When he finally succeeded in clothing himself, he realized his pockets had been pillaged and his keys were gone. In opening his trunk to retrieve money he had stashed for the trip, he found his stash of $180 was gone too. Suspecting his wife, he went to a lawyer named Eddie in Bellows Falls and brought him to the house with a local constable. Lizzie was confronted by the trio and began to cry and confessed to having given the money to another young attorney to whom she went and for whom she had obtained the money, she said. Parkinson then and there left her. He stated that they were through and he was visiting his family for the holidays and made it clear when he came back, he wanted her gone. Before Parkinson could return to Vermont, Lizzie had cleaned out the home of everything that wasn't nailed down. She removed every piece of furniture, clothing, and housewares. She sold them all, took the money, and hit the road, leaving Parkinson with nothing. Wow. That's a classic love murder move, I gotta say. Just the guy kicks you out. He says, be be gone by the time I get back. Okay. Then you just rob everything he owns. (laughs) rob him blind classic so after taking Hiram for all he was worth she fled back to Greenwich where she came across a dear friend and war buddy of her second husband Artemis's a man named George Smith Smith was a caretaker of an old farm and a pensioner Lizzie's account of the romance was as follows George Smith brought me his laundry and in a few weeks it wasn't months but weeks he wanted me to marry him he was an old soldier and drew pension so I married him romantic (laughs) So romantic. So romantic. Goals. This is the beginning of every classic love story. So she married him. Poor George Smith became husband number four in 1886. Later that year, Lizzie was documented as assaulting George's ex-wife while forcibly stealing a feather bed from his house. Oh, my God. Yeah. So apparently, like, he moved on with Lizzie. And he was like, the only thing I really miss about my ex is this wonderful feather bed. And he could never get comfortable. And so, like, I guess Lizzie, like, had it one day. She was like, fuck it. I'm just going to go and get that feather bed and take it. So she barged into this woman's house and was like, I'm taking the feather bed. And when the woman tried to stop her, she beat her savagely and then just rolled out with the feather bed. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Anyway, she spent 15 days in jail as a result of the assault. The assaults were not limited to just George's ex, however. She was prone to violent outbursts seemingly randomly, and George documented incidents in which Lizzie threw a flat iron at him and once threatened to stab him to death while chasing him with a pair of shears. She also publicly hit George and her kid, which is terrible. I know, poor Charlie. He continued to take her back because she would do a 180 and then become super duper sweet like right after the assaults. She'd be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I love you. You know, I just have a temper. Please take me back. And he 
kept taking her back. Eventually, Hiram Parkinson, husband number three, apparently having forgiven Lizzie for robbing him blind, came sniffing around and Lizzie began to cheat on Smith with him. Often staying out for multiple nights, so poor George would call the police. And eventually, even the police were like, bro, she's with another guy. Like, I don't know how to tell you this. Like, your wife's not missing. Nothing bad has happened to her. She's out stupping husband number three. Stupping. She's stepping out and she's stepping out. <laughs> so after a few weeks of this back and forth, Lizzie tried to off George by poisoning his tea. Fortunately, George caught on quickly. The tea tasted weird. And then within like a few minutes, he began to like profusely sweat and start shaking. So he called a doctor and the doctor ran over and immediately gave him something that made him vomit. Okay. So obviously saved his life. But during this entire event, Lizzie realized that she was going to get caught. So she disappeared with the teacup. So she destroyed the evidence before they could like look at what was in the teacup and figure out what poison she used. So she pieces out stealing the teacup. And then she returns in two days like, what's up, honey? And he totally takes her back. Stop. I don't know why. I don't know why mo- like men do these things. Like, I mean, we talk about it with women too. It's fair. It's both sexes do this. But it is. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I feel like we've had a lot, like going back a couple of weeks to the notorious Satorious, like she got a lot of dudes to take her back too. I guess it's that S-E-X, man. It is. Gotta be the S-E-X. Especially a lot of these guys are older. I feel like especially older men are appreciative of like young women, even if they're not like stunningly beautiful, you know? Even if they're crazy. Maybe especially if they're crazy. I think yeah. some guys like like it. Like it's really yeah. it's exciting. You never know if she's going to stab you or fuck you. Yay. <laughs> no, thanks. No, thanks. I will have a very boring, happy, normal, day-to-day routine life, please. And thank you. Yeah, no. Yeah. So... Not much longer after that, George returned home to a locked house. He had been, like, doing some work on the farm that he care took, and he, like, came home for the day, and he finds his house locked. So he has to climb through an open window to get in, and when he (laughs) gets into the house, it's completely emptied out. She did the same thing. She took all of his furniture, all of his clothes, all of his house. Where does she put all this? I have no, I think she also stole like a horse and a wagon. So she probably just loaded up his own wagon and sold everything. Oh my God. George though had like a really, he had a really good attitude about this. He's like, you know, in retrospect, I got my life and that's more than I can say about a couple of her husbands. So he lucked out in the end. Lizzie absconded with Hiram Parkinson back to Vermont, but their rekindled relationship only lasted a week before Lizzie moved on again, this time with husband number five, a painter named Charles Playstell. The two lived in marital bliss in Bellows Fall, Vermont, for only two weeks before Lizzie took off again. Little is remembered of this husband other than he was the only husband she had that was her own age. And he seemed the most unscathed by her abusive behavior. So it seems like she got in and out of this marriage really quick. And he didn't suffer the same way her older husbands did. Yeah. I mean, it probably would have been a lot harder to kill him. I think that's the whole thing. She preyed on men that were not physically strong. Yeah. Because she's also a little thing. I mean, she's doing a lot of damage for like a five foot, 105 pounder over here. 
So in 1886, at the age of 22, Lizzie found herself single again after five husbands. Five husbands by 22. Do you have to, like, I guess the first two died. The third one, she The third one she wasn't legally married to, I think, because he was already married to somebody else. Fourth one. Fourth one, she must have gotten a divorce from George. So you you did have to get divorces back then. I, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. I don't think you could just be like, we're done. <laughs> because that, that would mean that husband number three's wife could have done that. You know, yeah. I think you have to legally get divorced. Okay. So I'm sure Lizzie didn't seem like somebody who had her shit together. So I would yeah. say that probably her husbands were cutting her off at that point. Yeah. Also, I think if you got divorced and they, she couldn't get her hands on their pension, you know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she is 22. She's been married five times. She has no family support by now because she's been violent with all of them. And as we've mentioned, she has a disclination for working hard or working at all. So she began now what her family called her tramping period, where she just kind of traveled around. And I think she like stole from people to make money. She befriended a group of gypsies that traversed the Catskill Mountains. And on her travels, she revisited old haunts, including Greenwich and Newburgh. And in Newburgh, she discovered that her father had died and no one had told her. Weird. Yeah. Well, her whole family hated her. So they kind of ignored that she was around. And I guess that really affected her. She carried on to Philadelphia, where she returned to the tavern owned by the McQuillan son. So this isn't Nathaniel, the one she dated, but another McQuillan son named John. So... John had not seen his own sibling since she was a really little girl. And he apparently, his sister was coming from Canada to stay with them in Philadelphia. So when Lizzie showed up and was like, hi, remember me? He was like, oh, this must be my sister. Yeah. Yeah. So he like got his employees to make a room for her above the tavern so she could stay there. And Lizzie's like, this is great. Thank you so much. And so it wasn't until she was like moved in and that his like real sister came that he realized what had gone wrong and Lizzie wouldn't move out. She's like, no, this is my room now. Oh, and my God. he was so scared of her. He didn't want to make her leave. And finally, John McQuillan's wife was like, are you kidding me? Get this bitch out of here. She's not related to us. There's no, why are you giving her a place to live? So she got <laughs> kicked out then. And the McQuillans come up later in the story again. So they she kills like, his wife. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. She kills somebody. <laughs> so definitely remember the McQuillans. I don't know if this event is something that triggered her, but you'll see. Something else happens later. In January of 1888, Lizzie was going by the name Margaret Hopkins, and she was saying that she was a widow of like one singular husband. Charles. And yes, Charles. And Lizzie found a small home with a storefront for rent in Philly and she settled in. She bought some furniture on installment and immediately insured it. The curious thing was that the furniture was purchased for $37.50, yet she insured it for a whopping $600, which is the equivalent of $15,700 today. How can you even do that? You just pay more money for it? I think you just pay more money every month. So they're like, fine, as long as you're paying the premium, insure it for whatever you want. (laughs) 
So to absolutely no one's surprise, she then burned the house down. Yeah, I was say, did she get robbed or did she burn that motherfucker? Oh, no, she burned that motherfucker to the ground. The sad thing is, too, though, that both houses on either side of her also burned down. Oh, no. Yeah. So on March 14th, 1888, the house that she had been renting in both houses on either side burned down to the nubbins. It had been in a terrible blizzard. So the fire brigade had been delayed. Like they couldn't get through the storm. Wow. Luckily, both families on either side survived, but obviously their house and all of their worldly possessions were now totally kaput. Yeah, that's so, that's so messed up. That's so messed up because she's a selfish bitch, you know? Yeah, yeah. The firemen quickly pinpointed where the fire had started, Lizzie's room, where they found burning rags that had been doused in oil. She didn't even try to make this not look like an arson. Which is shocking after the teacup debacle. I know. She knew enough to hide that evidence. Yeah. Maybe she just thought all the evidence would get, like, completely burned up somehow. Obviously. But whatever. So Lizzie then checked herself into a hospital in Camden, New Jersey, with fake ailments when the police eventually tracked her down and arrested her for arson and insurance fraud. Again, she blamed others for her actions, claiming that unknown assailants entered her home and set it on fire. She would later tell famous investigative reporter Nellie Bly the following. Oil was poured out of a lamp over the floor and a match set to it. I saw it all, but I didn't do it. I didn't speak because I was afraid I would be killed, but I lay in my bed with my eyes open watching the whole thing done. Then I was arrested, convicted, and sent to the penitentiary. <laughs> You're delusional. Uh, she is very delusional. And she's like a child. Like, she never takes responsibility. She thinks that she can just deny it, and that's going to yeah. be good enough. While awaiting <laughs> trial. What, what are you laughing I'm just at? Imag- I'm just, like, imagining, like, Echo drawing on a piece of furniture with a permanent marker and holding it and being like, I didn't do it. I saw like someone else do yeah, it. It's like a literally what like little kids do. Like 100%. My dad tells the story about how my mom made a chocolate cake for my little brother's birthday. <laughs> and so I was like four. John was turning two. And have I told you this story? No, but I know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And I really wanted the chocolate cake. And so my mom kept telling me, you can have it tomorrow for your brother's birthday. And so, of course, the next day. I wake up before everybody else. I go downstairs. It's the next day. I think, okay, I can eat the cake now. I'm shocked you even waited that long, to be honest. dig into the cake with my little bitty hands and just shove the thing in my face. I mean, I just shove this entire birthday cake right into my gullet. My dad comes up like downstairs. He's waking up in the morning. And I had pulled a chair over and was just standing on a chair, just shoving chunks of chocolate cake into my face and he goes jessica jessica are you eating that cake and i was like no no daddy and he's like tell me the truth are you eating that cake i literally have my house but he's like looking at you yeah while he's looking at me i'm like full of cake cake all over my face no i am not eating cake Oh, I got into uh, so much trouble that day. Oh, my God. What'd your poor mom do? Oh, my mom was like crying because then my dad is like screaming at me about lying. I had no understanding about what lying was clearly or I, I would have done a better job. 
And so my mom's crying because she has to remake a cake and my dad's screaming at me and I'm crying and John's crying because he doesn't even know why he's crying. He's only two. He's like, I guess I don't get cake now. Oh my God. It was miserable. But yeah, she's like a child. She's literally saying like she's caught and she's like, I didn't do it. Somebody else did it. They're like, who? She was like, I don't know. These unknown people. I didn't know them. They just came into my house for no reason and set it on fire. Even though I have a huge insurance policy on the furniture in said house. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. So while awaiting trial, Lizzie's son, Charlie, was found to have been abused by her and was remanded into the society to protect children from cruelty. (sighs) Lizzie would never again see her son. Oh, my God. So sad. It's so sad because little Charlie's fate is completely unknown. He just disappeared into history. And I'd like to think that he found a lovely family to adopt him. But we're talking like 1800s orphanage. This is some Charles Dickens shit. I don't think like he had a happily forever after. I don't know. Who knows? There's no way to track it. Did did nobody knows the the kevin owen could not find any really records of him yeah of any of her family members well her family members yes but when charlie went into the system it would seem likely if somebody adopted him they changed his name yeah you know so it was impossible to trace little charlie so as much as i'm skeptical of the foster care system in 1888 or whatever it was i also you kind of have to believe probably almost anyone would be better than his psychopathic serial killer mother. Yes. Who was beating him regularly. Yes. 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 <laughs> so hopefully Charlie got a, a happy life. Maybe some of his descendants are out there listening right now. Oh gosh. That would be wonderful. Yes. Yeah. So in April of 1888, Lizzie was tried and convicted and sent away to the Eastern State Penitentiary for two years. Her stay was pretty uneventful for the now 25-year-old, except for two months before her intended release, Lizzie was deemed insane by the prison doctors, and she was sent to a psychiatric hospital to finish out her sentence. It's really interesting, though, because there's no records of what prompted the change because she was at the prison for the better part of her two-year sentence and then two months before she was supposed to get released all of a sudden then they were like nope she's insane she has to go to a psychiatric hospital yeah so upon her release she was sent to a halfway house that was monitored by a woman named mrs brown lizzie found she quickly did not appreciate authority so she stole all of mrs brown's belongings (laughs) sold it for some walking around money and took to the road again traveling from Philly through New York City and finally back up to Newburgh. In Newburgh in January 1891, she applied for work with a woman named Mrs. J.B. Smith, who ran an employment agency. She was briefly placed as a domestic servant in a home, but was shortly kicked out when she refused to adhere to the curfew and she ended up staying out all night. Around this time, Lizzie met up with a career criminal named Levi Rogers, who had spent time in jail for burglary, horse theft, and arson, just to name a few. I love that horse theft is a. I know it's a big deal. People were really pissed about horse thievery. (laughs) (laughs) Horse thievery. Horse thievery. I hate horse thievery. I hate those horse thieves. I know. It seems like such an old-timey crime. It Um, is. In May of 1890, it is believed that Levi and Lizzie killed and robbed a local peddler named Samuel Hutch Hotz, 
while he was peddling his goods in Wurtsboro, a town at the base of the Shawgunk Mountains in New York. <laughs> so somebody will definitely have to correct me. And I'm embarrassed because I live near these mountains, so I should know. But it's uh, S-H-A-W-A-N Gunk. G-U-N-K. I think they call them the Gunks here. Shawagunk. Shawagunk. Yeah. I like looked up the pronunciation while I was researching this and it was like Shawgunk. It was like they like make it all like one. They drop the other A or whatever. Yeah, exactly. His large cash roll and goods were stolen and the rest of his camp was burned to destroy evidence. Hutch's body was dumped in an abandoned mine shaft and later discovered by a hiker. Lizzie would later admit to the murder, kind of. Once again, she would claim that it was the doing of another person, in this case, Levi Rogers. Evidence could corroborate this murder. Kevin Owen wrote that after Lizzie's jailhouse confession that she had prior knowledge to this crime, a parcel was traced that Levi Rogers had sent to Troy, New York. The package, believed to be intended for Lizzie to pick up at a later date, was addressed to her using one of her many previous names that she used in younger years. The parcel contained two pistols, jewelry, and samples of fabric, which had been part of the peddler's goods. In addition, Levi Rogers had been arrested for horse theft, and his buckboard wagon was located near the old lead mines. The wood slats of the wagon appeared stained with blood. Law enforcement supposed Hutch had been shot elsewhere, shot elsewhere and the buckboard used to haul his remains close to the opening of the lead mines. Levi Rogers was already imprisoned when all of the facts came to light and an argument between the neighboring counties as to who would pay for the trial of Levi Rogers occurred. A lengthy petition was brought forth by Hutch's Jewish brethren to prosecute Levi Rogers, but no progress was ever made to convict him based on the counties arguing on the burden of the cost, the age of the crime, and the circumstantial evidence for the murder. To this day, his murder is technically unsolved, Although, with relative certainty, we can say Lizzie Halliday and Levi Rogers were directly involved. Yeah, they sound like a pair, you know? They do. They were like creepy 1800s Bonnie and Clyde over here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we've got, at this point, husband number one, husband number two, Mrs. Campbell, and Hutch. So that's four victims already. And she's only 25. Oh, I thought we were at five. Maybe we were. Am I missing something? Oh, no, four, 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 four. We're You're at right. four. Yeah, right. we're at four. Yeah. Don't worry. We're going to get to five. We're going to be moving from people she probably killed into people she definitely killed coming up. So after murdering Hutch, Levi and Lizzie split up. And once again, Lizzie went to Newburgh to apply for a job with Mrs. J.B. Smith. While there, she happened to meet a farmer and Civil War veteran named Paul Halliday, who was looking for a live-in domestic. The two hit it off, and they decided Lizzie would come work for Paul. Mrs. J.B. Smith was concerned. As she was witnessing the conversation, she believed that Lizzie was angling more for a husband and less for an employer. Paul Halliday was 67 years old, and he married 25-year-old Lizzie on March 26, 1891. Wow. Wow. Like, like we said, 67 is 130 in 1800s years. Seriously. How is that dude still alive? Well, he wouldn't be for much longer because marrying Lizzie was a fatal effing mistake. Many speculated that Paul thought he was getting a deal by not having to pay the young woman a salary to keep his house. And of <laughs> course, 
if Paul died, Lizzie would have a claim on his $12 a month pension and his 100-acre farm. Paul was definitely getting the bad end of the deal, as it would later seem that when the reverend said, till death do us part, at the ceremony, that Lizzie took that as a directive. How long? It wasn't very long. Well, it, it is actually, it's like longer than most, but only because she goes to jail for a little while in between. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Yeah. So poor doomed Paul was also an Irish American immigrant who had moved from Ireland at 20 and in 1862 was one of the first northerners to volunteer to fight in the Civil War, where he served three years, becoming injured twice. It was after this that he took his $12 a month pension and saved army pay and bought a hundred acre farm in Burlingham, New York. Things were looking up for Paul until his last son, Johnny, was born with severe developmental disabilities, and his beloved wife, Ellen, passed away in 1884. Compounding the bad luck, his second wife, a woman named Hannah that he had met in New York City, reportedly made life such a living hell for the farmer and his sons that they quickly disintegrated their marriage, and the woman later ended up in an insane asylum. Whoa. Yeah. After that, a domestic servant he had hired contracted consumption and was laid up for months. Like, almost as soon as she got there, she got consumption. So he had hired this woman to work on his farm, and then he has to just take care of her because he can't, like, she's, like, on her deathbed, practically. He even dug her a grave thinking she was going to die there. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so she finally recovers, and she immediately left the home, stating that ill fortune would befall all those who lived at the farm. She had a little fortune telling. Maybe. Maybe it was, like, built on a Native American burial ground or something. Are you just making that up, or do you know that? I just made that up. I have no idea. I don't know. It's the 1800s. He probably killed Native Americans, for all I know. Yeah. Yeah. Misfortune definitely befell Paul after his marriage as Lizzie was abusive towards him and his disabled son almost immediately. Oh, my God. Poor Johnny. She often told Paul that she had killed a former husband back in Ireland. So she had lied to Paul and Mrs. J.B. Smith because she didn't want them to know about her previous husbands or the fact that she had spent time in jail already. Okay. So she told them that she had just immigrated from Ireland. When the first time she met Mrs. Smith. Because she's going by Margaret now, right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So she said she was a recent immigrant and she said that, but, but she would tell him when she was angry, but back in Ireland, I killed a husband and I'll, I'll kill you too. So in one stunning act of arson and murder, Lizzie set fire to the house and barn, killing 37-year-old Johnny in the process. Oh my God. Yeah. So the details of how this horrific crime came to light is murky as hell. Because apparently when it actually went down, it was ruled as an accident. In June of 1891, Paul and Lizzie traveled to Newburgh to purchase horses, and they boarded at Mrs. Smith's while they were in town. So the same Mrs. Smith's where they had met. There, Paul told her that his son had been whittling by oil lamp, and Lizzie had been sick in bed when he had accidentally kicked the oil lamp over and set the house on fire. He then heroically saved a sick Lizzie and went back into the home to save some cherished belongings, but was overcome by the smoke and died. However, after Lizzie and Paul argued at Mrs. Smith's and she took off with all of his money and the horses, he had a different story. 
So Lizzie gets arrested, and when Paul goes to pick her up, she starts yelling obscenities and picking imaginary bugs off of her clothing. Ooh. Like, she's like, yeah. So Paul yells that she's just feigning insanity and that she's perfectly sane. He's like, she's doing this. She's just pretending she's crazy. She's not. Don't let her fool you. So he's, like, so fed up with her at this point. He just wants to get his money back, and he's like, whatever, leave her in jail. When police would neither release Lizzie or give him back his money as it was impounded as evidence, Paul exploded and demanded that Lizzie also be charged with arson and murder. Now, the arson had, like I said, previously been excused as an accident. So finally now Paul tells the police what actually happened. And this is from Killing Time in the Catskills. So Paul confessed that he was certain Lizzie had murdered his feeble son by locking him in his room as he had found the key in her robe pocket. She told him in a rage that she had killed him by cutting his throat, rolling him up in a carpet, and leaving him in the fire to die. That is brutal. Completely brutal. This information had not been heard by anyone before, as Paul had told other family members the heartfelt version where poor Lizzie was sick and Johnny had carried her, thus saving her life. Lizzie later recounted in an interview that Paul knew full well of the plan to burn the family home down. The plan, which she had conceived, was to burn the house for the insurance money. They would use the funds to buy new farm equipment and horses the struggling farm so desperately needed. Lizzie claims Paul only went off that day to have an adequate alibi. Perhaps Paul did not turn in his wife for arson and murder due to the fact he had been an accomplice in the plan to destroy the house for insurance money, an illegal activity with which Lizzie was very familiar. Paul certainly did not know in advance that Lizzie was planning to kill Johnny and was crushed by the death of his son. So he was torn as to what to do about the truth. Also, just prior to the fires in Burlingham, a neighbor's son named George Klein went missing and was never found. George was 14 years old, and after Lizzie's wild behavior in Newburgh, neighbors in Burlingham suspected that she may also be responsible for young George's disappearance. What'd she do with him? We don't know. We cannot fully attribute that one to Lizzie because we don't know. It's just kind of conjecture and innuendo. But we are now at definitely five victims, including Johnny. Yep. And a maybe with little George as a maybe number six. Oh, God, that's horrible. So the funniest thing about this, though, is the Newburgh police are like, uh, yeah, we don't care that happened in Burlingham. You're going to have to go to Burlingham and tell them that she burned down your house and killed your son. <laughs> we only care about the horses here. The horse thievery is what we care about here in Newburgh. So they're like, you're all out of luck. That's not our jurisdiction. We've got our own problems here. And meanwhile, so Lizzie had an older sister that had married and stayed in Newburgh when the family moved to Greenwich. So she hadn't seen her sister in years. And of course, at this time in life, like even though Newburgh is a pretty big city now, people knew everybody. So they're like, hey, Mary, your sister's over at the police station. You should go like check her out or something. So they called her to the police station and she showed up and she's like, yeah, we don't like her. We don't talk to her. She once assaulted our father so badly that she like beat him savagely, practically into a coma. She's also like attacked other members of our family. Yeah, nobody wants anything to do with her. So that's a big no thank you to me engaging with her, picking her up, having anything to do with her. Thanks. Bye. Rough. 
Yeah. Meanwhile, Paul is like, please just give me my money that she stole from me and let me go on my way. And they're like, no, sir. You are responsible for your wife's debts and she stole a bunch of horses. So you have to go figure out where those horses are and bring them back or like pay for them right now. Wow. Yeah. So he went out with a band of men to backtrack where Lizzie had been and get the horses back or the money back. So when they actually figure out what Lizzie was up to during that one singular day, it's kind of amazing. And this dude's 67. And this guy's 67. He's literally too old for this shit. Like running around with his crazy criminal, like 25-year-old wife. So Lizzie had stole everything in Paul's pockets, including a letter that was from his daughter being like, I hate your wife. You need to leave her. She's going to kill you. So she had this letter. (laughs) She stole the letter. She stole all of his money. She stole everything. She also apparently went and looked through all of Mrs. Smith's records before she left. Like she did this in the morning before anyone was up. And then she started her day by drinking and wooing men in a nearby bar, which I guess taverns were kind of open 24-7 around this time of life, I guess. And especially she was caught wooing and making out with a man named Gus Byers. And they were canoodling and she started telling other taverners that they were engaged to be married. Stop. This bitch is crazy. Yeah, she just met this guy. So when no actual proposal emerged, Lizzie went on to a stable to rent a wagon and horses. So she's using the money that she stole from her husband. So she, she gets a wagon and horses. She then gains an accomplice named John Glynn, whom she paid $3 to drive the wagon and pretend to be her husband. Lizzie then convinced him to help her trade the rented horses for better horses, which she did for one horse at a gypsy camp. And then she apparently picked up, like, while she's doing this business, she's like, can you throw in a cool gypsy-style dress for me? <laughs> which she immediately put on, and later she's captured in. Oh, my God. The second horse was sold, but then immediately stolen by a band of gypsies. And so apparently it came out later that she had basically, when she traded the one horse to the gypsy, she's like, okay, now I'm going to go down to this other farm and I'm going to sell this horse. But if you guys want to get the horse back, just follow me and steal it after I sell it. Oh. (laughs) So she's making trades, making deals, wheeling and dealing here. So after selling off like all of the horses and the rest of the stolen equipment, um, Lizzie sat underneath a tree and requested John bring her a piece of rope so that they could climb to heaven. That's what she said. Stop. Yeah. So she's not well mentally. It was then that she was finally apprehended by the police. So Lizzie was tossed to the Newburgh prison and she underwent rudimentary psych evaluations. Their diagnosis was that Lizzie suffered tocophobia, which is the fear of pregnancy, and something that looks like purpural mania. It's P-U-E-R-P-E-R-A-L. And that is kind of like an old-timey word for postpartum depression. Okay. They believe that the events of the horse theft day were caused by a miscarriage or partial pregnancy. So Lizzie was committed to Auburn Asylum and then transferred to Matawan Psychiatric Hospital, which you may remember from episode number 34, Evelyn Nesbitt and the Killer Millionaire, because this is the same psychiatric hospital that Harry Thaw stayed at. Crazy. 
Yes. And that's actually how I found out about this case was because when they talked about Harry Thaw being at Madawin, they talked about Lizzie Halliday being one of the more famous residents previous to Harry Thaw being there. Crazy. I'm looking at a picture of her now because I wanted to see if there was one of her in the gypsy dress because I can like so imagine it, but there's not. There's not. I know, unfortunately. Yeah, she's she doesn't look like she's got her wits about her. No, she definitely does not. No, no, she does not. <laughs> Dr. Henry Allison's notes regarding Lizzie were later published in a medical journal. He wrote, mentally, she is dull, stupid, unable to converse coherently. Woof. The expression of her face is very vacant. No amount of any questioning elicits any response, either in word or expression. Hallucinations of sight are constant. She sees reptiles, birds, bugs, etc. on her own person and in all who come near and will try to pick and shake them off. At times, she is restless and uneasy and makes many movements of a rhythmical nature. Lizzie's pulse is rapid and her blood sugar levels show serious health issues may be present. Oof. Yeah, no bueno. So around six months into the asylum, Lizzie begins to improve and she ends up getting released in the spring of 1893 after a little more than a year. Guess who was waiting for her when she got out? Husband number five. Yeah, husband number. No, this is husband number six. Husband number six is Paul. Oh, Paul. Yeah, old Paul came through, the poor guy. He had actually fought hard for Lizzie's release and never pressed charges for the arson or murder of his son in Burlingham for some reason. Well, you did mention that he was kind of complicit with the arson. He was complicit with the whole insurance fraud thing. So I think he thought if he pressed charges, then... You know, he'd have to implicate himself. And I, I think he had already gotten some insurance money at this point, so he didn't want to give it back, you know? Yeah. And so Paul had rebuilt the home Lizzie had burned down, and in she moved as though no time had passed. Oh, God. But Lizzie was far from rehabilitated and plotting a diabolical plan. Within three months of her release, Lizzie had stolen and hidden a pistol that Paul had borrowed from a neighbor, as well as managed to purchase some chloroform from a traveling doctor. Uh oh! Just just some quick chloroform, just a casual purchase of chloroform. What I mean, what if you're not doing surgeries? What do you need chloroform for? What is really sad, though, is that the traveling doctor later committed suicide when her murders were discovered because he felt like he was complicit in them by selling her that chloroform. That's sad. He shouldn't have that. That is sad. Yeah. That's like real deep guilt from Mm -hmm. someone else's crazy actions. Because it was, I feel like it was legal to sell that shit, wasn't it? Oh, totally legal. He had, it was well within his rights to sell it. It's just, again, though, like what, what purpose would a lay person have for chloroform? You know, she's like, could I grab some chloroform? And he's like, how much would you like? And she goes, oh, I don't know. Just enough to maybe kill someone. (laughs) Maybe it's enough to knock somebody out, then kill them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what is, you know. Normal amount. What would you recommend? How much would kill a grown adult? I'll take that much, please. He's about, you know, 69. Goes by the name of Paul. (laughs) In early September, mere months after Lizzie was sprung, Paul's son, Paul Jr., approached a constable because he hadn't seen or heard from his father in an alarming amount of time. Uh Uh-oh. 
Yeah. Lizzie had told Junior that Senior was away buying a piece of property. This was immediately suspicious because Junior knew that Senior did not have the money or the desire to buy a new piece of property. The whole thing stank to high heaven. The constable got a search warrant and searched the Halliday house. It was clear that something nefarious had gone down. Number one, Lizzie freaked out as soon as they started searching the house and she attacked the constable with a board, smashing the back of his head. That sounds familiar. Yeah, and not exactly the act of an innocent woman, I would say. No, no. So at that point, some of the cops were like, hey, where did you say that he was buying property? And she's like, oh, he's in Bloomingburg. And, And the cops were like, why don't we go over to Bloomingburg and we'll get him, we'll find him, we'll settle the matter. We totally believe you, Lizzie, don't worry. Like, let's just go get him. And they basically just did that to get her out of the house so that they could search without any more violent attacks, you know? Okay. So she's out. She's with the other constables. She's going to Bloomingburg right now. And then they start searching the home. And they find worrying clues like bloodstains on the rug, a bucket with bloodstained rags and brushes, a piece of bloodied rope, an axe handle, crowbar, board, and two shovels that are all covered with blood. Oh, my God. There's just blood everywhere. There was also a ton of dirt and hay on the floorboards. And then when they pushed it aside, there was just more bloodstains. So there's just blood everywhere. So frantically, they search for Paul by now convinced he had obviously been a victim of foul play. Yeah. Having searched the entire house, they went out to the barn where one man noticed something odd buried in the manure and hay pile in the barn crawl space. On closer inspection, they realized a human arm was sticking out from the waste pile. Oh, my God. hmm The men began to dig, and do you know who they found? Paul. It, it was not Paul. Paul Jr.? It was not Paul Jr. Little there George? Was not one? No, not Little George either. <laughs> I'll stop making you guess now because you'll <laughs> never guess. It's crazy. There was not one but two corpses in the manure, and they belonged to two women. One in her, like, 40s-ish, they thought, and one who appeared to be in her early 20s. The cops were astonished. They had no idea who these women were, and they still had no idea where Paul was. This is like you go looking for one corpse and you find two other corpses? What the hell? Yeah, that are like women? Like what? That are women. And they're not local. Like nobody in Burlingham was missing their mother or their daughter or their sister. Nobody had been reported missing. They have no idea where these women are from. Is it the McQuillan's wife? It might be a McQuillan. Good guess. Good guess. Okay, we're going to get to that later. So obviously the first order of business was sending word to the other cops to immediately arrest Lizzie because she's clearly very dangerous. And then they sent for the coroner. Both women were found in undergarments that appeared to be sleepwear. Both had been bound at the ankles, wrist, and knees with fabric. And both had been shot in the chest multiple times. The younger woman seven times and the older woman eight They could tell by the state of decomposition that the older woman had been dead longer. They were not killed at the same time. She had been dead roughly five days, while the younger woman appeared to have been dead only two days prior. Both women had suntan lines on their hands from stolen rings. It appeared that both women had been lying on their backs, perhaps asleep when they were shot. So they could have been drugged and then shot. 
A sketch artist mocked up an illustration of the younger woman's face, and it was sent to all the regional newspapers in hopes of identifying the young Jane Doe. While they attempted to discover the women's identities, they also expanded the search for Paul Halliday, now convinced that they would be looking for a corpse, and Lizzie was brought to court to be officially charged with murder. So this is like real old-timey, like people have their like pitchforks out because they hate Lizzie. Everybody's heard about this case already. So when she goes to get charged at the courthouse, there's already a crowd around her and they're booing her and they're chanting, get a rope. And Lizzie's being like led through the crowd with shackled hands and two jeering boys start like blocking her way and saying mean things to her. She freaks the F out and manages to like completely kick one of them right in the balls and then nails the other one in the shin. And so they both like go down like screaming and crying like while they were trying to like pick on her. And she's like shackled, man, but she's like fighting. So by the time she gets into the courtroom, she starts doing the whole act of being insane again she starts picking off the invisible bugs and she refuses to answer any questions about the whereabouts of paul and she won't say who the slain women are that are at her house and this is this is interesting because the entire ride to bloomingburg where she was like pretending paul was she was acting completely sane so it seems like she has this like act of insanity that she uses whenever people are gauging her sanity or when she might be in trouble. The bug thing is like a methy thing, I feel like. Yeah, it's really it's like weird. the you know, like the picking yeah, and the like picking, thinking that picking and brushing. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, Thomas McQuillan, he's like the original older McQuillan who was friends with her father. I mean, he's now 75. Jesus. He realized that his second wife and his daughter have gone missing. Slowly, news reaches him that two women matching their description have been found in Burlingham. And it was sadly soon confirmed that the two bodies discovered in the Halliday barn were indeed Sarah Jane McQuillan, age 21, and Margaret, her mother, age 51. How did he just find out that they were missing? Were they, like, supposed to be somewhere? So, basically, he didn't recognize Lizzie because old Thomas McQuillan hadn't seen her in many years. Yeah. It had been his son in Philadelphia who dealt with her. Yeah. So, he hadn't seen her since she was, like, 14. Yeah. He didn't recognize her. And I'll discuss it at length later, but she she had basically pretended to have work that she needed domestic help with. Okay. And it's believed that when she was at Mrs. J.B. Smith's, that this whole episode was triggered in her head because she looked through Mrs. J.B. Smith's records and Sarah Jane McQuillan was on Mrs. Smith's roster. Okay. And so her name, age, and address and what she was willing to do, which was be a domestic servant, was all written in her records. So it seemed like, Lizzie must have filed that away for later and decided for whatever reason to go and target Sarah Jane McQuillan. Okay. So he, Thomas McQuillan, had seen Lizzie come to get Sarah Jane at some point later. So he didn't realize at first that they were like deceased because he thought maybe they were just working on a farm at that point. Okay. You know, got it, got it, got it. So they bring Lizzie into jail and have the constable's wife search her. She asks to be excused to the outhouse. And while she's in there, they hear a loud plop. And it's like louder than 
any defecation would have been. Yeah. So after searching the privy, which I cannot think of any job more disgusting than having to search an 1800s outhouse, any outhouse, any porta potty. No, thank you. Yeah. They do find a 32 caliber handgun, two boxes of 32 rounds, a small bottle of chloroform, a lady's gold watch, a chain, and two rings. Honestly, I'm kind of impressed that she had this on her the entire time she was being arraigned. Like, isn't that crazy? Where was she carrying this stuff? Like, in her skirts, I guess? Had to have been. She had to have been wearing all those 1800s layers. Yeah. On the back of the watch was the initials SJM, Sarah Jane McQuillan. So while this is all going on, the friends and family of Paul Halliday are super pissed because the police have essentially stopped looking for him at this point. Not because they've given up, but just they're really busy with getting Lizzie to jail and like, you know, identifying the McQuillan women. So they start doing a deep search of the property by themselves. One of his neighbors notices that the grain on some of the floorboards don't match the others. It's clear that some of the boards have been replaced. The men gathered, grabbed a crowbar, and pried the boards loose. Underneath, the soil is loose and looks disturbed. After pushing the crowbar into the earth, they discover a burlap cloth. Immediately, a stench fills the small farmhouse, but they peel back the burlap anyway to discover a long-deceased Paul Halliday. Oof. Yep. So when the coroner arrives, he tells the men that Halliday has been dead at least for two weeks. So we're talking about two weeks, five days, two days at this point for when the victims all passed away. Like the other victims, Paul had been shot. For him, it was only three times in the chest. But unlike Sarah Jane and Margaret, Paul had also been terribly beaten. His left temple had a severe contusion with obvious bruising and a gash. And he had an orbital fracture of the left eye socket and his left eye hung loose and was resting on his left cheek. Jesse! Jesse! It's too early for that. Yeah, it's poor Andy's doing this at like 10 (laughs) a.m. It's too too early for hanging eyeballs. Oh, God. I don't think there's actually a good time for hanging eyeballs. No, no. The eyeballs always creep me out. Oof. His nose was severely damaged and appeared to be broken with obvious blood clotting present. Blood matted his heavy beard and mustache. Much like the other victims, Paul's ankles and wrists were bound and his arms were crossed over his chest. Whoa. She, I mean, I don't know if this was like they were fighting and she flew into a rage. And then after that, she was like, I'm going to get caught for this. I might as well kill more people while I'm at it, you know? Or she was just crazy. I think there's that too. Yeah. So now Lizzie is charged with all three murders and transferred to Monticello Jail under the care of a man named Sheriff Beecher. If convicted, Lizzie would be the first ever woman sent to the electric chair as first degree murder carried a mandatory death sentence in New York back in the day. When questioned, Lizzie attempted to implicate Thomas McQuillan in the murders saying that he came with the women like to visit her husband and engaged in heavy drinking and lewd behavior, suggesting that the men swap wives and have sex with each other's partners. 
And when she refused, she was thrust outside where she watched a quarrel break out. And then McQuillan killed her husband and both women. So she said she saw this through the window. Mm. Lizzie was then ordered to take care of the bodies, which she did out of fear for her life. A likely story. Of course, no one believed this absurd tale. And even her court-appointed defense attorney begged to be taken off the case. He's like, can I can I just skip this one? Can I just get the next one? Can you pass me? And they're like, no, 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 no. She needs representation. It's going to be you. And he goes, please, please, no. Just please, please sir. No. Don't make me hang out with this woman. Don't make me defend her. She scares me. I'm scared. So tracing back Lizzie's steps, it appeared that she first murdered her husband. They don't know exactly when or why. And then went to Newburgh, where she approached the McQuillan home using the alias Mrs. Smith, like the, the woman who had the employment agency. Yep. Lizzie stated that she needed domestic help, asked for Sarah Jane by name, and offered double the usual hourly pay. This was all witnessed by a neighbor named Mrs. Wright, who later testified at trial. Sarah Jane didn't want to go because she was actually on a break between her usual domestic servant job and she was about to go to Vassar for school in like a week or two. And so she wanted a break before she went to school. I know, that's so sad. Vassar's a good school. What a bright little button. So she didn't want to go. So her mother, Margaret, didn't want to turn down the double pay, the good money. So she offered to go in Sarah Jane's place. Okay. So Mrs. Wright, the neighbor, immediately had a bad gut feeling about Lizzie and was like, do not go with that woman. I don't care how much money she's offering you. Something bad is going to happen. Shit. Yeah, but Margaret went anyway. So later, like a couple days later, Lizzie returned to the McQuillan home stating that Margaret had fallen while using a stepladder and she had broken her leg. She said that Margaret had requested that Lizzie collect Sarah Jane so that her daughter could help her recover. Sarah Jane, being a caring and loving daughter, then went with Lizzie to her death, thinking she was going to help her mother. And also Thomas McQuillan, like, knew that he was like, okay, yeah, Sarah Jane, like, go help your mom. You guys come back as soon as you can, you know? Horrible. Uh, he must have just carried so much sadness and guilt. So yeah, no motivation could ever be discovered behind the murders. It's thought that when she was last at Mrs. Smith's, like I said, she, the whole she saw the name McQuillan in the book and this like triggered somehow in her insane head wanting to kill Sarah Jane for whatever reason. But Lizzie never admitted to the murders. She never explained why she had it done specifically the McQuillan murders. Later in court, the prosecution would say that the motivation was financial as she did steal the women's money and jewelry. But author Kevin Owen kind of suggests that she was just a serial killer. Like when yeah. we talk about like BTK or Bundy or something, we're not talking about like having reasons. There's no, no reason for killing people, you know? Yeah. yeah. So he's like, we they didn't know. Like they're trying to figure out why she would do this because they're looking at it like a person who's not a homicidal maniac, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now we know that some very, very small part of the population just has homicidal tendencies. Yeah. So yeah, she might have just been a serial killer. Crazy. But I mean, with a lot of those serial killers too, there's always like something that happens during a developmental part of their life. Like, and there was nothing with her, right? 
Not that we know of, but, you know, it's hard to say. She was born in 1859. Yeah, in so Ireland or in the U.S.? She was born in Ireland. She came over to the U.S. Yeah. when she was eight years old. So okay. between those two things, and I'm sure immigrants were not treated very well when they first came to the United States. I don't know what it was like as the youngest of nine children. Yeah. I mean, there could have been some abuse in her past, but her family suggested no and you know the eight older siblings none of them ended up being murderers you know yeah yeah so who knows it could just be one of those things she was just wired differently you know yeah lizzie was a nightmare prisoner refusing to eat to the point that they had to force feed her a liquid meal replacement whoa she brutally attacked and choked the sheriff's wife when the sheriff's wife attempted to help her bathe and she even set her cell on fire using the wood stove that was provided to keep her warm. <sighs> Nightmare. <gasps> wow. Oh, yeah. Wow. Sheriff Beecher was like, this is the worst experience of my life trying to deal with this woman in my prison. She would later attempt suicide once by hanging using her bed sheets and another time by breaking the glass in the window and using a shard to slash her own throat. However, it was thought that she didn't actually want to die because she did both of those attempts and the setting on fire of herself yeah. during the day when the jail was very well attended. Yeah. Now, this is a small town jail and they literally like locked up at the end of the night and went home and then they like came back in the morning and they're like, hi, Lizzie, here's your breakfast, you know? So like if she actually wanted to die, she could have done it after they locked up and nobody would have found her for hours, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. So they think that it was more like, A, uh, she wanted, she liked attention, but also B, she knew that she was going to have to go with an insanity defense. And so she thought the repeated suicide attempts would make her look more insane. Yeah. So the tale of the triple homicide by a woman had created huge buzz. So one of the most famous journalists of the era, Nellie Bly, even came to interview Lizzie while she was in jail. If Nellie Bly's name sounds familiar, it's because she was a total badass who famously feigned insanity so she could get committed and write an expose of the horrific treatment of mental patients in New York City's Blackwell's Island Asylum. Wow. Isn't that cool? Yeah. How'd she get and out scary. then? I have no idea. <laughs> I have not brushed up on Nellie Bly in a long time. There was just like, it was just a cool footnote to this story. I do think that eventually maybe her newspaper publisher or something helped get her out. Okay. I'm hoping. But she spent 10 days in a sane asylum in the 1800s. Woof. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, no thank you to that. I'm not that much of an investigative reporter. I like to sit comfortably in my house and, and Sipping read my Sipping your books. tea. Exactly. So not only is she said to have launched a new type of investigative journalism, she also broke records by going all the way around the world in only 72 days by herself in 1889. What? Like she was like, she was like in Hong Kong. Like she did the whole thing all by train and boat. Whoa. Isn't that wild? So she heard about Lizzie and she was like, mm, number one, this is fascinating because it's true crime and people love true crime. So she's like, I got to find this woman that reportedly murdered three people and interview her because this is wild. But also number two, she was curious about Lizzie's insanity defense as somebody who had spent clearly a lot of time around the mentally ill. She felt like she could make a judgment one way or the other. Yep. 
So Lizzie, for her part, adored the attention, and she told Nellie several different stories, some of them conflicting, and all of them painting Lizzie to be an innocent bystander. Uh Uh-huh. And she, like, would tell her a story, then she'd call her back, and she'd be like, sorry, I lied last time, but this is what really happened. And she kept (laughs) changing her story, but it was always, like, it went from Thomas McQuillan did it to a rove of random gang who she had never seen before just rolled into her house and did it. it 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 just kept changing after spending hours and hours visiting and interviewing lizzie nelly believed definitively that she had been 100 sane when she murdered her husband and the mcquillan woman and she was still sane but pretending she was insane yeah and that she was a shrewd violent and avaricious killer avaricious the dopest word for greedy I've ever heard. It yeah. makes it sound very upscale. Avaricious. Yeah. She's <laughs> avaricious. Leading up to Lizzie's June 1894 trial, the media frenzy only grew with some far-fetched reports claiming that Lizzie was Jack the Ripper, which, of course, was a fun rumor, but not true. No. So the trial is packed, like I said, and it's June, and apparently the courthouse was stiflingly hot. So this sounds miserable. From the beginning, the judge makes it clear to the jury that they have to find Lizzie guilty or innocent, but also sane or insane. If found guilty but insane, she'll be remanded to a psychiatric hospital. But if she's found guilty and sane, she's going to old Sparky. So... The prosecution is trying to prove that she's sane and committed the murders, and the defense is trying to cast reasonable doubt while also proving that Lizzie is totally insane. The defense attorney's opening remarks are essentially, I hate this. I don't want to be here. You hate Lizzie. I hate Lizzie. We all hate Lizzie. But let's get beyond that so I can show you that maybe she didn't do it, and she's definitely cuckoo for Cocoa Pops, okay? (laughs) Like, a poor guy who's like, Let's just come out with it. I I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. And the prosecutors are like, here's all the evidence that she threw in the shitter, plus some chloroform bottles that we discovered at her house. And, you know, the fact that all the bodies were discovered at her residence and she blah, blah, blah. Literally everything I've told you that obviously makes it that she did it. Yeah. So the McQuillan's neighbor and Thomas McQuillan himself testified and positively identified Lizzie as the one who had taken both women with her. And the rest of the witnesses were mostly psychiatric professionals weighing in on Lizzie's sanity. Lizzie herself really went for some courthouse shenanigans, seemingly an attempt to prove that she was not sane. When a doctor went to examine Lizzie in front of the court, she lashed out violently. Kevin Owen details the event in the following passage. There was a break for lunch, and it was determined that Dr. Edward L. Mann would give Lizzie an examination so that he would be able to ascertain her physical and mental well-being at different times throughout the day. As the doctor approached Lizzie, he wanted to look in her mouth and examine her tongue. Yikes. When starting to do so, Lizzie spat violently in his face. Leaping up from her chair, she bit the doctor and called him vile names. As she was grabbed by court officers, she continued her outburst by yelling profanities and banging on the tables violently. Lizzie was brought back to her cell where she rested on her bed but refused to eat. Returning to court after the break, as Lizzie was being led in, she grabbed a hold of a dress of a woman sitting at the end of an aisle. 
she struggled violently, refusing to let go of the dress and gave the woman quite a fright. Could you imagine you're at the trial for a triple homicide serial killer and she grabs your skirt and won't let go? Terrifying. So scary. So scary. Eventually, Lizzie was led to her seat and forcibly placed in it. Poor Dr. Mann got it again when he tried to examine Lizzie in her cell before the last day of her trial. Listen to this. Sheriff Beecher announced to Lizzie that she had some company that morning and asked her to turn her chair around to face them. When Lizzie obliged and turned her chair around, she immediately recognized Dr. Mann as the physician she had attacked the day before. Leaping from her chair, she grabbed the lid to her chamber pot and reeled her arm back to throw it at Dr. Mann's head. So there has to be like waste yeah. just flying everywhere while she's doing this. Sheriff Beecher had been prepared and acted quickly, grabbing her arm before Lizzie had a chance to hurl the object. District Attorney Hill put one hand to Lizzie's throat and guided her back into her chair to sit down. Having Lizzie seated, they stopped restraining her, and she quickly leapt up at Dr. Mann, landing a kick squarely in his lower abdomen. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like Jean-Claude Van Damme over here. Dr. Mann was clearly reeling in pain and stumbled backwards to a far corner of the cell. Lizzie was preparing to leap upon Mann and release her pent-up rage when she was grabbed again by District Attorney Hill. He had grabbed both of her arms and she was using all her strength to break free from his grip. Hill did not give up and ended up having Lizzie in a bear hug with her gnashing her teeth, trying in vain to bite down on one of the men. Wow. Dr. Van Etten had started to examine Lizzie when she headbutt Hill squarely in the face of the back of her head. Oh my God. With the help of everyone present, Lizzie was brought to the floor and held prostrate with one hand holding down each limb as she writhed, screamed, bit at the air, and yelled obscenities in every direction. The examination was finished and Lizzie was shackled at the ankles and allowed to sit back in the chair. She was totally exhausted, gasping for breath, and physically spent from the ordeal. I would be too. That was yeah. a lot. Dr. Mann made it quite clear that he thought she was sane and that her act that morning was overdoing the part. He was convinced her actions were not that of an insane person. I'm sure, I'm sure at this point they're like, fuck this bitch. <laughs> yeah, send her to old Sparky. Get her out of here. <laughs> Well, it seems that the jury was inclined to agree with Dr. Mann Thank because on God. June 21st, 1894, Lizzie was found guilty of first degree murder and remanded to prison to await execution. Whoa. Yeah. Also, she had obviously been spending a lot of time with Sheriff Beecher and he tri she tried to like kill his wife. And so- yeah. She asked him, she's like, no matter what happens, guilty or not guilty, will you escort me back to the prison? Because I'm scared because obviously the crowd hated her so much. Yeah. And so apparently while he's escorting her out of the prison after the guilty verdict, she turns around and takes like a chunk out of his arm. She bites him so hard. Ew. Yeah, and apparently the wound got infected and festered and he nearly lost his arm uh, yeah i was gonna say human mouths are dirty and it seems like she's been biting a lot of people i wouldn't doubt it if she like had rabies 
Yeah, exactly. And that only led to like this lore about her that even her spit was poisonous. That's how poisonous her soul was. Yeah, yeah. Gross. Okay, so yay, she's going to be executed. She's a monster. Everybody's so excited. But hold up. Not really. Because New York State Governor Roswell Pettibone Flower is like, uh... I don't think sending a potentially mentally ill woman to the electric chair is a good look. (laughs) And I don't want to be that guy who does it. And I don't want this to be my legacy. So on July 16th, he pardons her and sends her instead back to Matawan. People are pissed. Yeah. She had a full trial. She had a full trial. She was convicted of three murders. Also, you know, Whatever your feelings are about the death penalty, we're talking about the 1800s. This was a different era. I mean, death was the mandatory sentence for first-degree murder at this point. So people are way more used to it than, you know, they are now. Well, yeah, Um, and, like, people aren't getting, you know, persecuted and thrown in jail for stupid-ass crimes in which well, some probably states were. Yeah. <laughs> they, they probably never mind. Were. Never mind. Yeah, never mind. They definitely were. <laughs> I think now we just have an awareness, which we yeah, didn't okay. have before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, people are really pissed. And, you know, normally I would actually agree with them. Like you should not execute mentally ill people, even if you think they're faking it. If there's a potential yeah. that they are mentally ill or mentally disabled, you know, and they can't be held accountable for their crimes and they should not die for them. However, in this case, he was very wrong because Lizzie was still extremely dangerous. And so she's back at Matawan where she spends a few months in extended isolation after several escape attempts and violent behavior. After she appears suitably chilled out, they release her back into the general population. In September 1895, Lizzie joins forces with another patient named Jane Shannon, who had also committed multiple homicides and was considered the most dangerous woman in Matawan. The two psychopaths attempted to murder an attendant named Kate Ward. Thankfully, she lived to tell the tale. The episode is described in the book by the following. That day, Lizzie and Jane had been given the task of working in and cleaning the shared bath facilities on the unit in which they were both housed. What was unknown at the time is that both Lizzie and Jane had an intense hatred for Miss Ward and were only waiting for an opportune moment to attack her. As the two women worked in the bathroom, Kate Ward had gone alone into an adjoining room. As she was leaning over to pick up a bit of something, she suddenly became aware that someone was very close behind her. As she stood erect and was about to turn around, she felt cold, bony hands wrap around her neck and begin to attempt to squeeze the life out of her. Kate was able to spin around and quickly realized she had two women upon her. Two multi-murderers. Yeah, psychopaths. She described vividly how two wild women with bloodshot eyes and gnashing teeth were upon her with a seething rage. She fell backwards in an attempt to get away, and her prone torso was mounted by Jane, who had her hands clenched around her throat. Oh, also, this next part is so gross. As Kate attempted to cry out for help, Lizzie was forcibly stuffing a large towel into her mouth. 
In a frantic attempt to silence and suffocate Kate Ward, Lizzie had managed to force the entire towel into her mouth and down her throat. Oh my God, that's horrible. Horrifying. Kate was fading fast as this had obviously blocked her air passage completely. The room began to spin and her vision was fading when she realized her attackers were finally being pulled off of her. Lizzie was described as foaming at the mouth when pulled off Kate Ward, and it took the strength of three male attendants to restrain her. The two attackers were separated and were to never be housed in the same unit again. Wow. Holy shit. Yeah, but I mean, given what happens next, Kate was actually pretty lucky. The next Madawin employee that Lizzie targeted would not be so... This time, however, it wasn't someone Lizzie hated. It was someone she liked too much. Yeah, you don't want to be on this girl's bad side or good side, actually. You just want her to not know you exist. Yes, yes. In 1905, Lizzie befriended a charming young nurse named Nellie Wicks. While most employees treated Lizzie harshly, if not straight up abusively, especially after she'd nearly killed one of their colleagues, Nellie was sweet and kind. She was always speaking softly to Lizzie and treating her well. Lizzie became exceptionally dependent on Nellie's attention, and Nellie in turn became the Lizzie Whisperer, the only person in the asylum that Lizzie would listen to. Unfortunately, Lizzie's affection turned obsessive and unhealthy, with some suggesting that the obsession was also romantic in nature. Yeah. So she just got real sprung on poor young Nellie. Nellie was very smart, just a go-getter. Like, I think she was only 20 years old. Oh, my God. Yep. Nellie felt so assured of her safety while in Lizzie's presence that she left her free of the mandatory restraints that had been placed on Lizzie since the violent Kate Ward attack. No. Big mistake. This is kind of like when people keep tigers And they're like, I know my tiger would never attack me, you know? And then they lose their arm like in Joe Exotic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's a a Chris Rock sketch where he says, when people say like the tiger went crazy, the tiger didn't go crazy. The tiger went tiger. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's their nature. It's what they're going to do. Literally. So after a year of employment... Nellie was engaged, and she had decided to go back to nursing school full-time to gain a degree in a specialty field. The Madawan administration warned Nellie not to tell Lizzie she was leaving because they knew that there was going to be an emotional reaction that could potentially turn violent. Okay. Nonetheless, Nellie felt like she knew Lizzie better than them. She felt like it would be harder on Lizzie if she didn't prepare her and she didn't tell her if she just ghosted her, you know? Okay. So it was like roughly a week before she was going to leave. She tried to tell her that her departure was imminent. And Lizzie looked at her coldly and said, you won't leave me. When Nellie attempted to explain why and when she would, yes, actually be leaving, Lizzie only said through gritted teeth, I wouldn't try it. So on September 27th, 1906, Nellie broke the news that that was the day that would be her last at Matawan. It seems that Lizzie asked for something from the storage closet, and when she went in, Lizzie, who wasn't restrained, 
flew into attack and pushed Nellie into the closet. She then took the keys from the front of the door of the storage closet and inserted them into the lock from the inside. Yeah. Now these were old timey keys. So if you put the key in from the other side, no one could unlock the yeah. door from the outside. So it was impossible for anyone to get in. Nellie's screams brought other employees who attempted to unlock the door. And when that failed, they finally broke it down. They pulled a bloody Lizzie off of Nellie and were met by a truly horrific sight. Lizzie had stabbed sweet Nellie with scissors over 200 times, mostly to the neck and face. Oh my God. Psycho. Psychotic. Nellie was rushed to surgery but died on the table. Poor thing. Wow. When the horrified superintendent learned of the murder, he asked Lizzie why she'd done such a thing to a nurse that absolutely loved her and treated her better than anyone in the asylum. And Lizzie only giggled and said, she won't leave me now. Whoa. The superintendent was so infuriated, he threw Lizzie in a cramped windowless cell in the basement. Lizzie didn't see sunshine for a full five years as her punishment. She didn't see the light of day for five years. I mean, but that sounds like a fit punishment for what she did. Oh, oh my God. Absolutely. But also they're creating like a subhuman. I mean, she's already that bad. If you keep her in the dark for five years in the basement and no one talks to her, she's only going to get worse. Yep. By now, Governor Flower had passed away, so he never had to witness the horrible consequence of his pardon. Okay, that's fucked up. I know. He got to die and just never get to have to see what happened because of that. Ugh. Nellie Wicks was the first female corrections officer ever killed in the line of duty. And I guess that there's still uh, like memorials to her because she was the first woman who was ever killed this way. Lizzie lived in misery until her death by Bright's disease or acute kidney failure on June 28th of 1918 at the age of 59 and not a damn soul mourned her. No. Nope. In fact, the New York Times even titled her death announcement as the most hated woman in America is dead. Oh, my God. Yay. (laughs) Yay. She is buried in an unmarked grave on the grounds of the abandoned Matawan Asylum. Whoa. Yeah. So creepy. I'm not going there. You couldn't pay me. No, no, no. Okay. Fun extra murder fact. Though Lizzie's reign of terror was long over by 1924, her pistol actually killed again. Sheriff Beecher had actually kept the murder weapon, eventually handing it down to his stepson, Jim. In 1924, one of Jim's friends, a man named Smith Loomis, asked to borrow the gun to, quote, kill some rats. Unfortunately, the rats he was referring to was a poor woman named Emily that he was stalking Mm -hmm. and her new beau. On their way to a double date with another couple, Loomis followed them and shot Emily point blank in the chest, and he then turned the gun on himself. Whoa. But he survived the suicide attempt. He pled insanity at trial and was eventually sent to Matawan just like the gun's prior owner. Crazy. Crazy. How wild is that? That's nuts. Yeah, so they melted down that motherfucker gun after that. They're like, yeah, this gun might be haunted. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. 
Wow. What a story, huh? Yeah, that was crazy. I can't believe we didn't cover her yet. I know. She's actually very little known for like all of that killing. I mean, it's basically, let me count. Okay. So we got a couple maybes. The first husband, Charles, the 14-year-old neighbor. So that's two. The likelies are three. Mrs. Campbell, her second husband, Artemis, and then the guy, Hutch. So that's like five. And then we have five more because we have Johnny, Paul, Mother McQuillan, Daughter McQuillan, and Nurse Nellie. So that is like 10 potential victims. Yeah. And definitely at least five. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe that more people don't know about Lizzie Halliday, the Catskill Ripper. (laughs) But yeah, if you dig historical stories, if you like love murder, if you like Andy or me or kittens, please leave us a review. Let us know. We'd love to hear about it. Especially kittens. Thank you guys so much for listening. And in conclusion, don't take your spouse back after they poison your tea. No. No, 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 no. no, Absolutely do not. It's not going to end well for you or anyone else. If you're working with the crazy lady at Madawan, you got to keep her in a restraint. 100 percent why they're there (laughs) yes especially when it's mandatory because she already attempted the life of somebody else oh and as always trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered thank you guys so much for listening be safe out there love ya bye